Is the bear market over yet? I don't really know for sure, but it appears to me that the answer is no. Welcome to the Market Call Show, where we discuss what's happening in the markets and the impact on your investments. Tune in every Thursday on Apple Podcast, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Market Call Show. This is Lewis Giannis. Today is the day after Election Day. The midterm elections are still being tallied up. But as it appears to be that we have some sort of a control in the House by the Republicans and the Senate is still up in the air, but it's very tight. So hopefully we get some kind of a mixed setup in Congress because the market tends to love that from a return perspective. And we all want to see a good stock market. So that's one of the things that we're hoping that will happen I thought I would just go through a few things with you, what I'm seeing on my desk. Um, just a little sidebar, uh, on Thursday of last week, I came down with COVID and I was down for a couple days and recouped pretty quickly, but I have a little bit of a rasp in my voice, uh, a little bit of overhang from that. Today is uh, a few days later. So I, I guess I had about four days of, of not feeling 100%. I'm feeling really good energy-wise I uh, just uh, don't sound as good as I normally do. But anyway, with that aside, I want to talk a little bit about what's happening in uh, the overall markets and what I'm seeing and some strategy, maybe go over some of the, the um, ideas that I have that I think could help you protect your money, make some money. Um, one of the first things I want to talk about is the Fed and, you know, the Fed has been, as you know, tightening. We've had, I believe, four times we had a 75 basis point increase in rates. And there are some signs the economy is slowing down due to that. I saw a Fed study that came across the Bloomberg wire that said that uh, basically the study said they found the U.S. monetary policy recently is likely much tighter than interest rates alone would suggest, according to some updated calculation of a proxy measure that takes forward guidance of the balance sheet into account. I'm not so sure how much I believe that, <clears throat> but let me tell you what I do believe is going to happen. I think that we're going to see more excuses and more reasons brought to light by the U.S. Um, economic world, as well as the international community, to force or to coerce or to influence the Fed to not tighten as much in the future, in the very near future. And I, the reason why is because one of the things that I see is the dollar being so strong, that's really putting a lot of strain on Europe and other countries and um, in other uh, um, geographical areas because it's making our prices very expensive for them. And we're seeing signs that, you know, if the Fed were to continue to raise much more, it's likely to hurt the economy even more. You know, we've had a lot of soft numbers already in the economy. We had a couple of um, negative quarters, but somehow that was not considered to be a recession. Um, with the last GDP number that we had was, uh, posted as a positive number, but it appears that that was primarily due to net exports being stronger and a lot of government spending. That is not a good sign generally. If you back that number out, I saw one study that showed if you back that number out, 
we had a decline of something like 0.62% or something like that in GDP, even though the number was positive. So I don't view that as being necessarily a super bullish sign. Um, but one of the things I wanted to talk about was all these layoffs. We've been seeing um, Meta, Amazon, Oracle, Bed Bath & Beyond, Apple, Tesla, Twitter, Twilio, the list goes on and on where there's layoffs and hiring freezes. So I saw this one very interesting article, uh, Forbes article talking about layoffs on the horizon. A New York Times article also posted a, a host of tech companies announcing these hiring freezes, uh, pauses at Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. The big question here is, can these people that are lo losing their job be able to find a new job? And will there be enough new jobs that will soak up that uh, supply of labor? That is yet to be seen. I've had a very interesting set of discussions with clients that are asking the same question, which makes me wonder where the question is coming from or what news media is talking like this. But this the question goes something like this. What do you think about the recession coming in 2023? So that's very interesting. And it's almost verbatim what the, the question that they're asking. So, and I was like, well, I don't know, you can kind of make a, 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 an argument that we've kind of already had recessionary pressures, but why is it coming in 2023? Is something expected is usually not, uh, you know, something expected by the majority is usually not something that comes to pass. So it's very, very curious to me that that's happening. Uh, it, there seems to be a disconnect between what I'm reading from the 10Ks and the news from the companies themselves and what we're getting from the headline reports in the economy. So, and when you look at the stock market, the stock market is already discounted in some form of a recession, if you will. So I know a lot of people want this election to really kind of be behind us and to get some clarity on this. One of the things that seems to be coming up is that why is there such a discrepancy between what the polls are saying and what these votes are coming in at? So I, I hope it doesn't turn into a lot of unrest, but you never know. So that's one of the risks that I see in the marketplace. But one of the things I want to really point my attention or our attention to is the interest rate environment. I had a conversation this morning with a good friend of mine talking about, uh, and he's a he's an investment manager, uh, works with clients, and we were talking about interest rates. And he said, you know, every time the, the Fed raises short-term interest rates, long-term interest rates decline. And that is actually true. That is actually true when you have an interest rate environment that is in a secular decline. So that was one of the things that I looked up. And I'm actually, I want to share this chart with you. So in this chart... It actually shows the two-year treasury rate, the five-year treasury rate, 10-year, and 20-year. And I'm going back, you know, quite a bit of ways back. It looks like I'm going back to 1990, March of 1990. So this is after the dot-com bubble. Now, we've had, obviously, long-term, uh, you know, those rates have been going down. Those interest rates have been heading down. So what you could see is there's times when you have an inverse yield curve or when you have all the yields getting really close together. So why is that important? So when normally what you like to see is you like to see long-term interest rates have a much bigger yield than the short-term interest rates, or at least a reasonable amount of 
uh, duration spread, if you will, where you get compensated for taking on a longer term interest rate uh, lock in. So normally you would want to see some kind of a spread there. If that spread gets really tight or even negative, so like the two year, for example, could be a higher interest rate than the five year or 10 year or 20 year, that's usually signs of recession. And what this chart shows here, you could see that there are times when all the rates get really close together. You see that here right around 1995. And then that's when, you know, short-term interest rates are rising. And then you see this drop, right? And then you see, we saw it again right after uh, 2000, I guess we saw it. And then it happened it happened again. Then we had the, the, the drop in rates. And then it happened again uh, in 2006. And then we saw this drop happen again in 2018, the financial crisis. And then we had this drop. So now we're in this big up move, and here we are again, where we have this bunching up of interest rates and negative yield curve, not good uh, for, generally speaking, for a positive market. So uh, the question is, is will this resolve in long-term interest rates going down? So let me tell you, my guess is that the answer is yes, that we could see long-term interest rates go down in the short term if the Fed actually turns this economy down into a much slower scenario, much slower growth in the economy, we're likely to see uh, long-term interest rates temporarily go down. But if we are in a secular rising rate in, uh, interest rate environment, which could be the case, then the next cycle up, you could have long-term interest rates higher than they are right now. So that's one of the things that, that is important. So what I'm looking at is that if the rules are reversed and they're not the same as we see in the secular declining interest rate environment, in other words, instead that we will have rising long-term interest rates in each consecutive cycle, progressive cycle that we see, then we should probably allocate our capital in a way in fixed income where at least a percentage of your allocation should consider that potential scenario. So whatever that percentage may be, I guess you could say, well, if I flip a coin, it'd be 50% of my capital. Um, but in my mind, somewhere along the lines of at least a third of how you think about or how we are thinking about fixed income is with that potentiality that we could have a rising interest rate scenario secular wise. So in that scenario, we would have more capital in short-term treasuries. And that is what we're doing right now. We still have exposure across and investments across various fixed income asset classes, but to a lesser degree than we would normally have. So, but overall, if you look at the fixed income market from a technical perspective, it is absolutely brutal. And maybe I should just flip through some charts to kind of go over that and, um, you know, and, and put it in context with the market. So um, what I want to do here is I want to actually um, first go through the stock market and then as the context, the backdrop, and then bring in the fixed income market so we could see how they've been responding during this uh, particular decline in the markets. So if you may not have seen my interview on stockcharts.com with Dave Keller, but I talked about some downside projections given various technical conditions. And I've got this chart up right here right now that shows what I was 
you know, showing as levels. So the first level I was looking at, or the primary level, was back up here uh, at 38, 18 or so. We hit that level fairly quickly. And that was very early in the year when I had, had brought that down. But at the same time, I brought down a couple of lower levels that I thought were possible if we went into a real bear. And we hit that second level. Actually, it appears that we hit that second level in October. So we hit that second level at 35.16 on the S&P. We just touched it briefly, almost to the penny, and, and went up for a good amount. And now, um, if we have a failure, if we have a failure of the lows here, my next target down on the S&P 500 from a technical perspective would be 32.14 on the S&P. So that's just a general overview of what I'm looking at. One of the things that we look at is a trend indicator that really looks at multiple time frames from a two different perspectives. One is uh, the moving average oriented, moving average trends in various time frames, and then the other is more range oriented. So where the market has been in this range over various time frames. And that went negative actually uh, on January 21st, uh, 2022. And it kind of oscillated back and forth early in the year, uh, kind of whipped around, but it's been fairly consistently down since then. So now I want to bring that in, in into perspective with fixed income because in the fixed income market, the amount of carnage we've seen has been brutal. I mean, Worse than you normally see, worse than what uh, I, I would have expected. You know, even though we've been expecting and I've been expecting a bear market in bonds. In fact, I've been, was telling clients years ago, let's start peeling some money out and getting money into higher return guarantees as fixed income proxy, lowering exposure to overall fixed income. And um, that has helped, but it still hurts when you look at whatever capital we have had in fixed income has been so negative. So I'm going to, I'm going to just bring up some of the various um, fixed income markets so that you could see what they've looked like. This is an ETF. It's called the PowerShares International Corporate Bond. So this is showing bonds, not in the U S they're investment grade and uh, they're denominated in other currencies, primarily the Euro. Look at what has happened here. I mean, we're talking at a price level. This ETF was sitting at, at 30 bucks, above 30 bucks back in, uh, what is that? That is uh, 2020. And look at how far it's gone down. Unbelievable declines. Um, another would be the high yield market. This is HYG. HYG is a high yield market. So that's like sub investment grade type investments. And we saw a peak out back in December of 2021, and then we had a big decline. I mean, we went all the way from 84 down to the 72 areas where it's sitting at right now. These are big moves when it comes to fixed income, because normally when you think of fixed income as something that you're going to protect capital. And I was having a conversation with a client yesterday, and she asked the question, what do we do if we get into a situation that is like, depression type situation. And that's a very difficult question because you could have long-term interest rates go down in that scenario. So long-term bonds could do well in that scenario. Um, there's some um, 
sometimes real assets do well in that environment. Sometimes it doesn't. So what I really want to focus in on is that fixed income is not just something you could just, you know, buy and hold necessarily all the time. And there's times when the regime regime changes are so significant that the rules that you've used in the past must be altered in order for you to make good rates of return. I'm just using another example. Let's look at the iGov, I-G-O-V, International, that's the iShares International Treasury ETF. Big declines. Look at that. I mean, big declines. And it's still in a downtrend. So uh, another would be the emerging market, bond market, big declines. I mean, you go down the list, even intermediate term treasuries, huge declines, mortgage bonds, I was so shocked with the amount of decline that came from mortgage bonds. Uh, municipal bonds, municipal bonds, look at the decline in the municipal bond market. Um, even inflation protection bonds and intermediate term gov- governments, intermediate term corporates, they've all been in a bear market. So is the bear market over yet? I don't really know for sure, but it appears to me that the answer is no. I think the bear market in fixed income is still in place. Our trend indicators would say you just stay with the trend now. And it's actually saying being more in treasury bills and um, and at least to be in a position where you have dry powder and you can deploy that capital capital at better uh, rates of return in the future. Those are the big things that I'm seeing right now And I want to switch gears a little bit now to talk a little bit about some of the things about the government and uh, if we have a kind of mixed Congress, which is what we want. If we have a mixed Congress, we probably have less chances of rising taxes. I think the market would like that. We probably have a lower chance of assessing higher taxes on oil companies, which reduces their ability to fund drilling for more oil to try to overcome the current supply constraints, because a big part of our inflationary problem is energy. I know there's a lot of people that disagree with this, and some people feel like the energy companies are being hoardish, they're gouging, and um, that, that, that they need a windfall tax to help them, and we need price controls. So I, I'm, I'm actually going to push back on that. I'm going to say that price controls are a bad idea. We've tried that before. Whenever you have price controls like that and you, uh, you know, limit the amount of revenue that can be generated, it actually will hurt supply and in the long run hurt prices and do the exact opposite of what you're trying to do. So um, it's a political move that can really be dangerous. Back in the Nixon administration, uh, we did the, those pr- price controls were brutal. They really were bad. So I think we should avoid that. But now let's get to the question I was asking myself. Are these oil companies really gouging? Are these oil companies really just, you know, um, being irrational? So I did some digging. Uh, One of the things that I did was I went and I said, okay, let's take all of the energy companies, all the stocks that are in the energy companies that are in the Russell 3000. So very broad, large companies, mid-sized companies, small companies. Let's take every one of those companies And let's look at their margins from various types of margins, gross profit margins, operating margins, EBITDA margins, net profit margins, cash returns. You know, let's look at that, the return on capital. 
let's look at it over the years and see, are they historically statistically gouging compared to other years? And what did I find? I found actually that the answer is no. In fact, what I found was that if you go back and you look at the net profit margins, the net profit margins move up and down and they average out to be a minus 3%. This is going back to 2000. Yes, going back to 2000. Look at this. You see these margins up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. We're on the higher end of the range, but that is not you know, high compared to other years. So what they're really trying to do is recuperate some of the massive losses. It was only a couple of years ago that there was some massive losses in the energy sector. So I thought, okay, well, what is a good way for us to see, a reasonable way for us to see if they are really gouging? And the first thing you would do is you would look at the stock prices. So I went and said, okay, what if we went back 10 years and we said, okay, over the last 10 years, if they have been gouging, if they're gouging right now, they should be like coining money and the stock prices should just be like unbelievable. And what I found was actually over the last 10 years, there has been a severe underperformance of energy stocks. If you look at the XLE, which is the energy sector exchange traded fund, those stocks have underperformed by threefold versus the average stock in the S&P 500. So how could that be that they're gouging if they've underperformed by three times? It is only now that we're starting to see an outperformance. And what's interesting about this is, you know, when the outperformance of the energy stocks actually bottomed out, it bottomed out in November, basically when Biden was elected. So some people are saying, well, it's not policy related. Well, the market is telling us a different story. Um, I've talked to executives who are actually involved with the drilling part of it. And if you actually look at oil production, oil production is down from the high. It is down. Even though there are a lot of permits, it takes a lot of time for um, uh, oil supply to be brought on. And also, there is a ton of capital that's needed, and there's also some shortages that are that are really keeping oil companies from making, you know, creating more supply. It's a very complicated, and I'm not an energy expert, but when I look at this from a high level, my smell tests logically says that they are not doing anything out of the ordinary compared to what they have done. And in fact, over the long run, energy companies have not had very good returns on capital at all. It costs a lot of money to generate oil. And I think one of the things that's happening is, is, is uh, you know, people think that somehow the green energy is just going to fill the gap right away. It's, you know, most studies show that that's not true. So policy with energy is going to be a big, big determinant, in my opinion, of how well inflation is kept under control. The other thing is what's happening with... Um, Oh, the, the Ukrainian conflict, you know? I just saw uh, something over the wire that said Zelensky sets condition for genuine peace talks with Russia. It was a Wall Street Journal article. Ukraine, Ukrainian president said he would op he's open to genuine peace talks with Russia. 
following pressure from Western backers to signal readiness for negotiations amid concerns about the rising costs of the eight-month war. Okay. At some point, there's going to be some negotiations. I think um, that's our way out. And that could be the light at the end of the tunnel in many ways for a lot of uncertainty that we have right now. I don't know that it's going to completely solve the energy problem. Somehow, I believe that we have been really placing the blame for the energy problem only on the Ukraine conflict. And I looked at that. The actual the oil prices started going up before the conflict started, well before, uh, like I said, like right when Biden came into office, the, the oil scenario completely changed. Much of it policy-driven. Okay, uh, another thing that's really hitting my desk right now is Beijing, China, they have been locking down due to COVID. They have this zero COVID policy where they're really looking to try to keep COVID down. They've had a more of an increase in, the, in outbreaks in COVID. I just had COVID. I'm seeing more COVID um, here in the United States, um, at my ch- kids' school, a lot of kids are coughing everywhere you look. <laughs> they're all coughing. Um, so I think this could affect things in our economy from the perspective that we are not going to have as much availability of supply, right, of, of Chinese goods. We saw that net export number, you know, uh, showing that we're exporting more than importing because you know, possibly just because we're not getting as much from China and could this, you know, get exacerbated? I don't know. That is a risk that is out there that somehow the COVID uh, constraints will mess with our supply more, which is inflationary. We have a lot of inflationary pressures that are still there regardless of what we see with uh, the Ukrainian the Ukraine conflict. There has been uh, some really good breakouts and some of the stocks that we're investing in have, um, you know, been doing fairly well. And I just wanted to point out that the markets are not homogenous. You know, a lot of the big companies, the apples of the world have really not been doing well. Amazon's not been doing well. Those those types of companies have not done well. But we have this one uh, little trend filter that we do we like try to identify which stocks are actually showing demand for the stocks themselves, and then they have good profit margins, good growth, and to find opportunities. And there are quite a few companies that are starting to uh, pop up. Um, here's one company that we did take a position in recently. Um, it's Booz Allen Hamilton Holding Company, and we saw a very nice breakout. If you look at the chart here, you could see we had some resistance levels here. And, you know, at the 97 area, we had resistance over here around the 88 level. We broke through nicely, and now we're in this beautiful uptrend. And even despite this nasty market, we're seeing names like that. Another one recently that we invested in is a company called Science Application. Uh, very similar type scenarios, you know, basing in a volatility contraction type pattern where supply and demand is balanced. And then all of a sudden we see a break to the upside, good fundamentals, and we're strongly moving up there. Uh, there. There are examples of companies like that that are out there. 
Another one would be Cortiva, uh, which is another company that we have a position in that has been moving higher. Another one would be CMC, commercial metals company, which has been basing and is now breaking into highs. So this is what we're looking for. We're looking for those companies that are bucking the trend that can have something positive and good going on. There's that saying, there's always a bull market somewhere. I'm not sure I believe that. <laughs> I think out of all my career, all of my career, uh, I've seen, this has been one of those markets where I've seen more downtrends than ever before. You know, I mean, usually when one market's going up, the other one's going down. And, you know, uh, there are some markets you could find. And, but in this case, almost every trend indicator that we have is in the negative right now. But there are some uh, areas where there's shining light you can invest in. And that's what we're trying to do. So that's a little bit about what's been going on. And it's a little bit about what's on my mind right now. Uh, we'll see what happens with the election. It's part of the mosaic. It's not the entire picture. And we need to uh, be sure that we don't put too much into the elections than is due. The information in this podcast is informational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. WealthNet Investments is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where WealthNet Investments and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure.